This podcast is about correcting the balance, whether it's something celebrated as good when it shouldn't be or the other way around. Or maybe the heroic tales of history just need to be knocked straight on their ass. Me, I just want to share the complete picture because that's when this whole thing gets fun. Warning, jokes and sarcasm may ensue. Welcome to Prick the Balloon. Hi, I'm Mike Vance, and I'm a history nerd. I've written more than a dozen history books. I've produced, written, and directed eight feature-length history documentaries and over 200 history short films. I've taught continuing education history classes at one of America's top-rated private universities. And here's my bottom line when it comes to historical figures. I don't do hero worship. Everyone who's ever lived has gray areas. No one is all good or all bad. And I'm not talking about some Mussolini made the trains run on time idiocy. Sometimes a piece of shit is just a piece of shit. But by and large, most of us occupy the in-between. And that includes famous people. I mean, hey, Gandhi probably farted a lot, vegetable diet and all. My point is that you've got to look at the full picture. And that's what I hope to do with this podcast. History is nothing more than our collective stories, and a good story is rich in detail. So let's have some fun. I figured I might as well jump into the deep end right out of the chute, and I'll start with a guy who engenders strong feelings. That is Andrew Jackson, the seventh president of the United States. I mean, shit, people can't even agree on what state the dude was born in since the Waxhaw region of the border of the colonies of North and South Carolina was disputed at the time. Because of the notion that the party was the champion of the little guy against big corporate interests, the Democrats for years held these Jefferson-Jackson dinners all over the country. Most places have since changed the name of that big celebration and fundraiser with the notion that Jefferson owned slaves and Jackson was an all-around tool. The new names generally honor a state's favorite native sons and daughters, like Fannie Lou Hamer in Mississippi, LBJ and Barbara Jordan in Texas, Hubert Humphrey and Walter Mondale in Minnesota. The fact remains that Jefferson is still the most important founder of our nation, and Jackson, well, killed American Indians by the thousands. I'll note, by the way, and I am not joking, that Republicans dropped the name of their annual Abraham Lincoln dinner because Lincoln did good things for African Americans. And that's against party policy for the last half century. Anyway, back to Andrew Jackson. The famous story from his childhood is during the American Revolution when the British Army was in the Carolinas, young teenage Jackson was captured by the Redcoats while serving as an errand boy for the rebels and refused to shine the boots of a British officer. He got struck in the face with a sword. Now, I'll add here that most accounts use the phrase, the British occupied the Carolinas, but the whole place had been a British colony for a century, so they couldn't occupy their own territory. Now, could they? In addition to being hit with the sword story, which does vary by account from a slap with the broadside of the sword to a partial beheading and some fancy stitch work by Betsy Ross, young Jackson caught smallpox. So, in real life, like many people of the time period, he probably carried pockmarks on his skin. Tough to tell because he wasn't photographed until he was almost 80 years old. All politicians have a carefully crafted legend. Always have. I'm sure Alexander the Great's PR firm should be given much more credit, right? The Great? Kind of presumptuous. Well, Andrew Jackson's legend has always been this rough frontiersman. But let's point out that when he was 20 years old, Jackson was admitted to the North Carolina bar as a lawyer. He moved to what would become Tennessee a year later with the job of prosecuting attorney. 
In other words, Andrew Jackson was a lawyer for the man. Not the common man, just the man. He maintained a private law practice in the fledgling community of Nashville for 30 years. That's where and how he developed his closest friends. And let me be clear, I like lawyers. They're important people to have, and most of them, those without hair dye streaming down their faces, are fine folks. It's just that Jackson was no coonskin-wearing bumpkin. Jackson also owned slaves and accumulated almost all of his wealth through enslaved workers. That, of course, was common at the time. His plantation, the Hermitage, had 95 enslaved people on the eve of him heading to the White House in 1829, and he took 14 house servants with him. He then bought or rented more enslaved labor while living at the White House. In fact, he fired several of the free laborers who had worked at the White House under John Quincy Adams and replaced them with slaves. Thanks to his record-keeping, we know the names of the people Jackson owned. He had a longtime cook at the Hermitage named Hannah, and her son, George, became Jackson's manservant. That meant sleeping on a pallet in Jackson's bedroom so he would be ready whenever the big man needed anything. George was even in the room when Jackson died. Unlike Jefferson, who wrote volumes about the immorality of slavery even when he denied his people freedom, Jackson never said jack shit about the institution in general. He was seemingly just accepting the practice that needed no comment. He did make his plantation overseers keep meticulous records, though. On the one hand, he wrote one overseer a nasty letter about depriving him of his property, and that's a quote, when one enslaved man died. Again, Jackson used the word property, not person. So that's kind of a glimpse into how he felt about the whole thing. We do know that Jackson ordered a woman named Betty to get 50 lashes with, as he put it, the cowhide. And for another man who escaped, Jackson ran an ad in the newspaper promising a reward plus an extra $10 to any person for every 100 lashes up to 300 lashes, a number that would almost certainly kill a grown man. So let's look at his start in politics. When Tennessee became a state in 1796, Jackson was one of its first congressmen, but he declined to run for re-election and swore that he would never run for office again. A few months later, yep, less than a year, he ran for the U.S. Senate and was elected. He lasted about a year, and then he quit that job, came home to Tennessee, and ran for a post on the state Supreme Court, which he got and kept for five years. Ultimately, the job that caught his fancy was being the major general of the Tennessee militia. Maybe like the cool hat. I mean, who wouldn't? When the War of 1812 started against the British, Jackson let the United States know that he was at their disposal, and they said, we'll get back to you. I mean, the man's entire military resume at this point consisted of getting sword whipped by some British officer. Eventually, Jackson got sent not to fight the Brits, but the Creek Indians, or at least a faction of the Creeks known as the Upper Creeks, or Red Sticks, or even Baton Rouge, if you prefer. They lived in today's Alabama. Now, a disclaimer here. These Red Sticks are among my personal ancestors. My great-grandmother was a Red Stick. So here's the deal. The Upper Creeks, or the Red Sticks, were allied with the British, and here's why. They were already having trouble with the lower creeks, 
also known as the Muscogees for our purposes, and the Lower Creeks were allied with the Americans. Most of the Red Sticks trade was with British traders who were working out of Florida, a place that belonged to the Spanish, and the U.S. had been trying for years to take the Creeks land in South Georgia and Alabama, so that pissed them off too. And to top it all off, Several Scots had intermarried with the Creeks a few generations earlier, giving the Creeks chiefs with names like McQueen and McGillivray. No lie. So, Andrew Jackson takes his Tennessee militia and allied Indian tribes of Muscogees, Choctaws, and Cherokees, all enemies of the Red Sticks, and he fights these upper Creeks for about five months, finally beating them in the Battle of Horseshoe Bend, a big U-shape in the Tallapoosa River, about 60 miles southeast of Birmingham, Alabama. You can still go there today and see where my ancestors got their asses kicked. The result of all this is that Jackson builds a fort, conveniently called Fort Jackson, and deliberately places it right on top of a sacred Upper Creek town site, the name of which translates to Hickory Ground. Now, the park rangers at Jackson's house will tell you that Jackson's nickname, Old Hickory, comes from him being strong and tough. But this whole Hickory Ground sacred site thing is just too much of a coincidence for me. And at this fort, Jackson has the Creeks sign over the last part of southwest Georgia, plus the entire middle of the modern state of Alabama, about 23 million acres of land that the U.S. takes. So the Red Sticks all end up moving west toward the Mississippi border, and white Americans start buying up and settling this land. What does Jackson do next? Goes after more land, of course. He heads toward Spanish West Florida, today's Florida panhandle around Pensacola, ostensibly to find the British who are there. But really, what he's trying to do is capture this chunk of real estate and make it American. The Redcoats, though, hop a boat for Louisiana, and Jackson takes his army after them instead. Ultimately, this ends up in the Battle of New Orleans on January 8, 1815. And if you know New Orleans at all, on January 8th, those bastards are probably still hungover. Jackson did not have many troops, and he's facing a British army of about 8,000. So he declared martial law, and he required every able-bodied man to come fight, and another 4,000 guys show up which roughly quadruples his force. There's everybody from Creole aristocrats to free blacks, of which there were a lot in New Orleans, to enslaved blacks, of which there were even more, to Choctaw Indians again, and actual pirates. And why not? I mean, this is a redneck wet dream. I require you to come shoot foreigners. The battle lasts a couple of hours, and it is a resounding victory for the Americans. The big war hero Jackson kicks back at his home in Nashville for just over a year before the government sends him back to West Florida, an area that the U.S. had rather randomly decided was part of the Louisiana Purchase all along. It's like leaving the grocery store with your bags, then going back 12 years later and saying, hey, y'all forgot to give me my cheese. Jackson once again is after Indians. This time, it's Seminoles who had intermarried with escaped slaves gasp, but we'll go into that another day. The president at this point was James Monroe, fairly popular dude. The country is sailing along fine, and when he steps down after two terms, uh-oh, all bets and friendships are off. And that brings us to this wide-open election of 1824. And recent dumbassery aside, this is easily the most complicated election we've ever had. 
The whole thing had been humming along just fine with two parties, the Federalists, think Washington, John Adams, and Alexander Hamilton, and the hyphenated Democratic Republicans like Jefferson and Madison and Monroe, and that's the party that had won the last six presidential elections. But in 1824, the whole thing goes to shit. The party ends up with these different factions. Four serious candidates emerge, and because the Federalists had pretty much finally gone away during Monroe's administration, a few of their policies had been taken on by the Democratic Republicans, all four candidates are from the same party. They all end up getting electoral votes. Two are cabinet members, William Crawford, who was Secretary of the Treasury, and John Quincy Adams, who was Secretary of State. Henry Clay was the Speaker of the House. And then there is Andrew Jackson, who had been running military errands for James Monroe. There was one other candidate, John C. Calhoun, who didn't get any support for president, who was overwhelmingly, though, chosen to be vice president, because under the funky-ass system at the time, those two posts were not necessarily connected. When the votes are counted, Jackson has 99 electoral votes, Adams 84, Crawford 41, and Clay 37. Crawford, he gets sick. He's too ill to be much of a factor, so Henry Clay, Speaker of the House, who was ambitious enough to run for president four more times, became, to use Bush speak, the decider. And Clay threw his support to Adams. So Adams got elected on the first ballot of the tie-breaking vote in the House of Representatives. Jackson's camp grumbles and whines that the whole election was rigged and corrupt and that he rightfully won, if all that sounds at all familiar. Note that what Jackson did not try to do is pay fake electors, hire lawyers to set up press conferences at a landscaping business, or send a bunch of cosplaying cowards to the Capitol building dressed as Vikings. Just saying. Four years later, in 1828, Adams and Jackson face off again, and in no kind of a nail-biter at all, Jackson gets elected as the seventh president. But the whole campaign is the ugliest to date, and one thing the Adams camp had circulated was that Jackson's wife, Rachel, was not legally divorced from her first husband when she married Jackson. And that's a true story. But when they figured it out, Andy and Rachel had gotten married again. But she was so mortified by the personal attacks that she went into this tailspin and she died right before Christmas three months before Jackson got to move into the White House. And Jackson held long grudges over what he perceived as this slight. Let's note here that Jackson had already fought duels over disparaging comments toward his wife. By one historian's estimate, Jackson fought 103 duels in his lifetime. 103. While that number is sinking in, I'll head off the next question at the pass. Yes, Andrew Jackson murdered men while dueling. In one case, he violated the code of honor by recocking his pistol after it jammed and shooting his opponent down anyway. A few things about Jackson's presidency in general. Up to then, presidents were chosen solely by parties and the politically powerful. But after the debacle of 1824, Jackson is perceived as being the first truly democratically elected president who got there by appealing to the masses. To make sure this appeal was constant, Jackson hired a full-time painter to live in the White House. This is pre-photography, mind you, so this is his version of the official White House photographer. And this guy cranks out artwork of Jackson to be copied and sent around the country. 
Most of all, he kept circulating this anti-establishment image of himself, even though he had been part of the conservative, rich people, big landowner faction of Tennessee politics for 30 years. Again, this might sound familiar. Jackson was largely a stranger to governing, and his closest advisors are the guys who helped get him elected, a bunch of newspaper editors for the most part. Right from the start, his actual cabinet, especially John C. Calhoun, his vice president, Martin Van Buren, his secretary of state, and John Eaton, his secretary of war, were majorly hating on each other, and very publicly. Jackson, for his part, hated Calhoun, because Calhoun, his vice president, remember, had denounced Jackson 10 years earlier for invading Spanish Florida. The drama. Now, I'm saving most of the nullification crisis for a future topic about the run-up to the Civil War, but I'll say here that the issue of a protective tariff on imported goods that was popular in the North and West where people made and grew things, but unpopular in the South and New England where people imported things, led to Congress authorizing the president, Jackson, to send American troops into South Carolina. It didn't happen, but it could have. From an economic policy standpoint, there are two things I want to mention. And I know economics are as boring as snails playing tennis, but bear with me. Jackson was passionately against debt relief or bankruptcy laws. He also got his ass in a crack over the Bank of the United States because even though this was one of the biggest issues of the day, Jackson as a candidate tried to play both sides of the argument, and he continued to play both sides in the early part of his presidency. Here's a little background. Alexander Hamilton, who was not actually a good singer, created the first bank of the United States back during George Washington's administration. And the idea was strongly opposed by Thomas Jefferson and James Madison, who said that it favored rich investors over everyday farmers and artisans. Well, the charter for the first U.S. bank had expired, and after a lapse of a few years, a second one was started, though a little more privatized. And it was under Jackson that the renewal of this charter came up for the national banking system, this second bank of the United States, that allegedly existed to stabilize currency, better allow for interstate trade, and to generally smooth the rough edges of this chaotic system where every little chartered state bank could print its own money and set its own rates and policy. Andrew Jackson and all of these Westerners and Southerners were all for this chaos. They said that a national bank would lead to corruption, and they quoted the same arguments that Jefferson and Madison had made 30 years earlier. Let's set aside for a moment the notion that Jackson's argument was that this federal bank would violate the principle of equal opportunity in a world where blacks and women had no rights whatsoever. The Jackson team was right about the corruption, but... Their fix was not to alter and adjust the system. It was to basically throw the baby out with the bathwater. When this renewal of the bank's charter comes to a head, Jackson's old enemy, Henry Clay, and his fellow Senator Daniel Webster saw to it that the renewal passed Congress, but Jackson vetoed it. Some of his accusations against the bank were flat-out lies, and some of it played to these uninformed conspiracy theories about bankers, familiar ground yet again. Jackson wrote this screed against what he called the moneyed interests. This ignores the plain fact that Jackson, a very wealthy lawyer, was part of the moneyed interest, but he was a master of that common man bullshit and he carried the day. Was he right in hindsight? No. Corruption and banking continued unabated. 
finally in 1907, almost 80 years later, after the country had endured one financial panic after another, Congress created the Federal Reserve to stop things like runs on banks and act as a central bank under public control. And since that time, over the past century plus, the U.S. has generally had the most stable currency in the world. Apologies to the British pound and Swiss franc, but y'all ain't all that. Of course, banking corruption and the moneyed interests still flourish today because we've never outlawed paid lobbyists with big expense accounts. Again, the subject for an entire other podcast. Just remember, folks, that campaign finance is the most important issue in American politics. It's always the bribe money. One of the most famous stories about Andrew Jackson was him having this open White House where all these Western rubes wandered through the place, spat tobacco juice on the carpets, and stunk up the furniture. And yeah, that's true. The tradition started by Jefferson was an open house following the inauguration. And in 1829, when it was Jackson's turn, 20,000 people showed up, and they rummage all through the White House shit, busting up china and dishes. Finally, the enslaved house staff set up wash tubs full of whiskey and juice out on the lawn to lure the rabble out of the house. People said the White House carpet smelled like cheese for six months. Spoiler alert, that ain't cheese. One interesting note is that Jackson had long owned racehorses, and he even shuttled them back and forth between his plantation in Nashville and the White House in Washington, D.C., along with three enslaved boys... Byron, Jesse, and Jim, who were trained as jockeys. Their enslaved trainer, a man named William Alexander, also came along. They all stayed at the White House for several months until racing season was over, and then they got sent back to Tennessee. Now, here is the biggest thing to know about Andrew Jackson's administration. His policy toward Native Americans, indigenous people, or as my grandmother always said, American Indians. And don't argue with my grandmother. In 1829, Georgia unilaterally seized about 9 million acres of Cherokee land where gold had been discovered. Now, this land had been set aside for the Cherokee in a treaty ratified by the Congress of the United States. So the Cherokee took the state of Georgia to court. Not once, but twice. The Supreme Court sided with the Cherokee and told the state of Georgia to go pound sand. Jackson completely ignored the Supreme Court. Now remember, this is a lawyer with decades of running a thriving practice and a former state Supreme Court judge himself. This is not some rube who doesn't understand the importance of the law. Keep in mind that this is the same Jackson ready to invade South Carolina over tax collection. But when it's stealing land from Indians, his response was literally, let John Marshall, the Chief Justice, try to enforce it. But Jackson was not done. He decides to go the state of Georgia one better. Andy and his political allies come up with the Indian Removal Act in 1830, and it says not just the Cherokee, but the other four major tribes living in southeastern United States, people who'd been living there for centuries, have to sign over their land in exchange for land west of Arkansas Territory. They were not given a choice. They were not paid. They were forcibly moved by the U.S. Army. The sole reason, the only reason for this, was that the white people wanted their land. 
Jackson signed this Indian Removal Act into law, and while other presidents back to George Washington and the push into Northwest Territories were doing some form of this, the British were doing this in colonial America, the Spanish, the French, the Portuguese, the Dutch. Nobody's blameless. It's Andrew Jackson who could be directly called an ethnic cleanser. Beforehand, the U.S. had, at least to a certain extent, actually respected the treaties that they signed with these Indian tribes. They at least kept them in the back of their minds. But Jackson, who was already had quite the track record of killing Indians, goes all in, forcibly removing over 60,000 people en masse, all at one time, making them leave their ancestral home and move to what is today Oklahoma. That's the famous Trail of Tears. I'll even forego any Oklahoma jokes here. Those ancestors of mine that I mentioned earlier, they'd already been relocated once, and now they were forced to leave the farmland they had purchased and move again. Luckily, my family had enough money to buy a riverboat ticket and take the southern route. Tens of thousands of people, though, are forced to walk in horrible winter weather and with little food. Creek, Cherokee, Choctaw, Chickasaw, and Seminole people. 17,000 of those people died. Jackson most definitely changed presidential politics. There's even a word, Jacksonian, that historians use to talk about this time period. And I am hard-pressed to find another president who has his own adjective. Nixonian, you heard that for a while. Jeffersonian, that's from a TV crime drama. Trumonian, Filmoron, I got nothing. Jackson's time in office strengthened and forever enshrined the two-party partisan system. It started a run on the political capital to be gained from log cabins and rough frontier stories. William Henry Harrison, Zachary Taylor, and God knows Abraham Lincoln all used that same kind of origin story. Jackson's administration reinforced internationally the concept and morality of having a democratic form of government. No denying that. Though I will point out that all this democracy coincided with the the what-the-hell-took-so-long development of most states abolishing their property owner requirement for voting. So most white males, not just the rich ones, were allowed to take part in elections. On the other hand, Jackson stepped up the genocidal policies against American Indians like no for him and likely none after. And that is saying a lot. Plus, even by the standards of dueling, He violated the code and murdered at least one man in cold blood. So how about a couple of postscripts? Under Obama, it was decided to remove this genocidal maniac from the $20 bill and replace him with Harriet Tubman. The orange dude who followed Obama nipped that idea in the bud, pushing the whole thing down the road. There is still a bill out there pushed by Senator Gene Shaheen to make this into law, but as of now, it sounds like a definite probably in the year 2030 that Jackson will disappear from the $20 bill. The most recent controversy surrounding Andrew Jackson was the fact that his portrait was chosen to hang in Trump's Oval Office. You can read about that in an article in Politico, but the person who chose that painting to represent the Trump mindset was Steve Bannon, the felon who didn't know how to use a shower. He evidently thought Jacksonian rabble-rousing was a thing to follow, and his boss bought into it. I mean, his boss was such a Bone Spurs war hero himself and all. There's no word on how any of them felt about killing Indians by the thousands. One thing we do know for sure, Jackson's painting wasn't chosen for the Oval Office because of the seventh president's hatred of bankruptcy laws. Hey, 
Thanks for listening. I hope you enjoyed Episode 1 of Prick the Balloon.